0: Father, I want to thank you for the truth of your word here in Colossians, Philemon. As we go over these books, I ask God that you would just give us a a knowledge of Jesus Christ to do your will. And as we even look at that concept this evening, open our eyes. And Father, there's just so much of this type of philosophy we're going to read about in Colossians in our world today, in this generation. I ask you, Father, give us eyes to see and a heart of wisdom to be able to speak truth into this generation and its lostness, God, and its uh, caught up in dead, vain philosophies. I ask you, Lord, give us the eyes of Christ by your Spirit as we now look into your word. Excite our heart, God, with these truths. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so Colossians. Uh, you might remember Colossians was written about the same time that Ephesians and Philemon and probably all three of these letters went out together. Uh, we're probably looking at 60, 61 AD, um, either in more towards the beginning or the end time of Paul's two year imprisonment in Rome when he was under house arrest. Philippians is written close to the same time. <clears throat> But uh, while Paul was in that Roman prison, but uh, at a different time. Now, here's some things to note. I don't know if when you were reading Colossians and Philemon, (coughs) excuse me, you noticed some of the crossover. Number one, who was the scribe for Ephesians? Does anybody remember? You guys remember his name? Really, really close, yeah, Tychicus, or Tukikos. And if you're. That's how you pronounce it in Greek. But the. Tychicus also, more than likely, penned Colossians. We read about this in chapter 4, verse 7. And he at least <clears throat> was the one who went with the letter. <clears throat> Excuse me. And delivered it. Um, if you were to look at chapter 4, verse 9, okay, go ahead and look at chapter 4, verse 9. What name is given there that should, that you, you should remember? It sounds familiar. Anesimus. And where do we read about Anesimus? Aside from here, of course. Help me out. Philemon. Philemon. It was Philemon. Okay, Philemon. How do we know? Phile- how do we know Onesimus? Who is this guy? Philemon's ex slave. Now, when we get to Philemon, we're going to look at that a little bit. But Onesimus, <clears throat> excuse me, is going with the letter of Colossians and the letter to Philemon, and so Onesimus is now being returned. There's another name here. Uh, if you were to look at chapter four, verse ten, Aristarchus. Mark, skip down to verse 12, Epaphras. Verse 14, Luke and Demas. Now skip over to Philemon. And we discover these very same names in verse 24. Epaphras, my dear prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends you greetings. And so do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow worker. Excuse me, I don't know what's wrong with my my throat here. Um, And we also read in Philemon verse 2 about Archippus. And Archippus is mentioned in Colossians 4.17. Tell Archippus, see to it that you complete the work you have received in the Lord. And so I think it's pretty clear that the book of Colossians went with the the letter to Philemon. um, And Philemon lives in Colossae. We, we learn about this. There's a church that actually meets in his home, and well, we'll get into that later. Colossians, therefore, is, is penned about this time. I don't know if you noticed this. As you read through Ephesians and then through Colossians, there were numerous parallels. The most obvious, of course, is when he's talking about putting off the old man, putting on the new man. But he's talking about being clothed with Christ and being able to, um, to love. The focus in Colossians 3 is love, as the focus in Ephesians 5 is love. Um, and then we get to these... Uh, Husbands, be gracious to your wives. Wives, be obedient to your husbands, as unto the Lord. Children, obey your or submit to your your husbands. Children, obey your. I'm sorry. Can you two guys? I'm sorry. There's a spider Okay, Jim, can you go take care of that, please? Jim will take care of it. All right. Thanks, buddy. All right. <clears throat> And you, you see these parallels, and he also tells, there's an instruction to slaves, instruction to masters, and it's a little similar to uh, what we read about in 1 Peter, but these really are the only two books that parallel so closely like this, and it's because they were written one after the other. Now, I don't know which was written first. Um, we I, I, I don't know. Uh, I, I personally think that Colossians was, but it doesn't matter what we what we read here then in colossians is a number of parallels um i'm going to encourage you if you ever have time sit down and look at Col- look at ephesians and look at colossians and just see the number of parallels that there are the very first thing we're going to get into today uh, in depth is the supremacy of christ in in colossians 1 we see that in ephesians 1 Okay, who was, uh, who by the same power that, uh, raised us from the dead, J- Jesus Christ was raised to life and was seated at the right hand of the Father far above every rule and dominion and power and title that can be given not only in this present age, but also in the one to come. He's the head of the church. And so that's what Colossians 1 does. So we actually, again, we see a number of parallels. I'm not going to get into those parallels. But I'm just gonna leave that up to you and encourage you to look at it a little bit closer. It is possible that Paul did visit Colossae. Now, I want you here's what I want you to do. If if you have a map in the back of your Bible or somewhere of Paul's missionary journeys, I want you to go to that so that you can see this. If we're gonna look at Paul's third missionary journey. And where does Paul go? Because it says that he go acts as he went through the interior of Asia. Now, of course, that's the province of Asia, not Asia, uh, the continent. And it is very possible that he went through Colossae, Laodicea, and Hierapolis. All three of those cities are very close to one another. And you remember Laodicea because there was a letter that Jesus wrote to that city in in Revelation chapter 3, okay? And that's one where he says, I want you to be neither, um, no, you're neither hot nor cold, you're lukewarm. And he rebukes them for this, okay, if you remember that. This Laodicea apparently has a letter that we read about at the end of Colossians and they are to exchange letters. Very possible that that letter was the letter we have in our Bible entitled Ephesians. Now again, some of the earliest manuscripts do not have the word Ephesus in Ephesians chapter 1. It's blank. Uh, there is one that actually says Laodicea. So tradition though tells us that it was Ephesus and most of the manuscripts tell us it's Ephesus. Regardless, a circular letter and Paul, even though he visited, if he did, it wasn't for very long. He then went to Ephesus and he stayed there for three years. So he either left Epaphras in Colossae or while he was there in Ephesus for three years, he sent Epaphras to Colossae. We don't know which, but it is through Epaphras that Colossae... The city of Colossae heard the gospel. We read about that in verse 7. You learned it from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who's a faithful minister of Christ on our behalf. Now, Paul begins with a prayer, just by the way, like he does in Ephesians 1. He begins with a prayer, and I want us to look at the main point of his prayer, and we find it in verse 9. And... Halfway through, he says, you know, we've not stopped praying for you and asking God. Here's what he's going to ask him to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Sounds very spiritual. Yes, knowledge of God's will through all spiritual wisdom and understanding. But here at the heart of this prayer At least in the back or really forefront of Paul's mind is this Colossian heresy that is rooted in a philosophy that they have mixed or begun to mix with the gospel. And he wants to caution them. People are coming in and they're spreading these um, philosophical ideas, the religion of angels or worship of angels. And some and, and, and asceticism and these various elements are beginning to take root in the Colossian church, and he's got to caution them about it. And so he's going to bring correction to this heresy, but he doesn't just jump in. He starts at the very beginning, because the reason why, um, the reason why they are embracing all of these, uh, these what he calls empty philosophy or vain philosophies is because they're veering away from the very root and foundation of the Christian faith, which is Jesus Christ. Now we're going to see that as we go through it. Um, The Colossian heresy, for example, look at chapter two, verse eight, chapter two, verse eight, see to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition so it's stuff that men have made up, and it sounds good, and because it sounds good, it's been passed down. Human tradition and the basic principles of this world rather than on Christ. So can you see that they're veering away from their foundation in Christ? Now, turn with me then, because I don't know about you, my question was, what's the basic principles of this world? Let's turn over to chapter 2, verse 20. Since you died with Christ to the basic principles of this world, why as though you still belonged to this world do you submit to its rules? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Those are some of the rules that make up the basic principles of this world. If you were to travel the world you would realize that there is a basic understanding of right and wrong. Romans 2 speaks of this, that it is the law of God written on the heart of the Gentiles as well as the Jews. Okay, It's what our founding fathers called natural law. Natural law is the image of God, broken as it is, in us, that gives us our, what we call conscience. It is this general sense of right and wrong. You know, it's broken. It's not perfect. But it will cause us to want to create rules. Nothing wrong with this. But here's what's happening. So that we don't sin, we build walls in front of that sin. I'm not going to cross this barrier. I'm not going to climb this wall. And it's do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Because if you do, then the next step is that you're going to sin. And so this concept of asceticism is this harsh treatment of the body. Okay. I don't want to overindulge in food. So I am going to fast a lot. I, I don't, there's some of them have this weird sense of pleasure. Pleasure is wrong. Some pleasures are. But as a result, many of them say all pleasures are wrong. And therefore, I'm going to build my own personal set of rules that will keep me from pleasure. Okay, And this type of asceticism, this type of rigorous rules and regulations, um, some of the Jews were using the Old Testament law as well. So there's a little bit of Judaism in this Colossian heresy. There's a little bit of, well, a lot of asceticism, but it goes back to the basic principles of this world, right or wrong. And here's what it does then. It says, regardless of how bad I am, I am able to pull myself up and I am am able to become this complete man or complete woman. And that is at the heart of humanism. Now, humanism says man is basically good. I don't know if they believed that man is basically good with the Colossian heresy. Regardless, if they were to follow these basic principles of the world that all men are aware of to some degree, then they would be able to make themselves better. And what they began to do is they began to veer away from Christ, even to the point where it says, if you were to look at chapter 2, verse, give me one second here, 18. He says, do not let anyone who delights in false humility, my version says false humility, that word false has been added by the NIV, but I think it does help us to understand that this concept of humility is really not a genuine humility. And the worship of angels, do not let anyone who delights in false humility or worship of angels disqualify you for the prize. Such a person goes into great detail about what he has seen and his unspiritual mind puffs him up with idle notions. And so there is a strong emphasis of experience in the spiritual realm. Even this word worship, it's really the Greek word for religion. Um, it, it can be, that word religion can be used positively. Obviously here it's not, but it is a religion that they have formed. This is scary. A religion that they have formed that doesn't place Christ as the supreme, but it, it, it emphasizes spiritual beings in general, angels. And now Hebrews chapter one challenges us and says, hey, look, Jesus is far, the son is far above, and he had, to which angel did he say, you are my son today, I've begotten you? To which angel did he say, and all God's angels worshiped him? Uh, or, or, or rather, he, he said to the angels, uh, all God's angels worship him. And so we see this clear distinction between the son and the angels, and yet the Colossian heresy was bringing, was lowering the status of Christ and elevating the status of spiritual beings. And so he needed to address this. And so to do that, he starts off by talking about the supremacy of Christ. Now that is the title that NIV gives, chapter one, starting with chapter one, verse 15. And I think it's a fair enough title because the idea of the supremacy of Christ, just like in Hebrews one, not only is Jesus far above Angels, but he's above the, he's above Moses who gave the old covenant and Jesus gave the new covenant. So that's what Hebrews is about. And here, Jesus is far above any spiritual being, including demons, whom he disarmed at the cross. It tells us in chapter 2 verse 15. But he has then become the one who reconciles all things to God. He then becomes the one who is the giver of our... Because chapter 3 says, because we are in Christ, we have this life that will be fully manifested when Jesus appears. But he is the source then of our life. And we're going to get into this. But then also, why don't we sin? The Colossian heresy basically comes up with this philosophy of... I'm the one who's doing this. I'm the one who's crucifying these desires. And look how good I am doing and what I am achieving. And Paul is saying, hey, guys, all of this is rooted in Christ. It's rooted in Christ. Um, Let me just make sure that I'm on target here with everything I want to say. Give me one second. If you were to look at chapter 2, verse 6. I would say chapter one, verse 10 is the springboard of where Paul is going to go with this. When he says um, that you would be, he's asking God to fill you with the knowledge of his will. The knowledge of his will that he really gets into in chapter three. How is it that we truly deny self? How is it that we truly are filled with love? Is that human effort or is that rooted in Christ? fill with the knowledge of his will through all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Not some hidden type of knowledge, but it's made available. Christ has revealed. Everything goes back to Christ. In chapter 2, the first five verses, all in whom are hidden, verse 3, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Everything, all truth goes back to Christ. Everything does. If if you're going to be in taking classes in college and they're going to be talking about all of these truths if that truth cannot find its root in Christ it is not truth okay let me say that again if you are learning anything that postulates truth and it says this is truth but it cannot be it cannot be rooted in Christ it is not truth i don't care if it's scientific i don't care if it's mathematical i don't care if it is philosophical If it is of any other branch of science, if it's not found in Christ, who holds all things together, then it is not truth. All right. Chapter two, verse six. So then, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live. And I want you to emphasize, underline those two words in him. And, and this then becomes the crux of where Paul is going with all of this, the supremacy of Christ, the fullness of God in Christ. And now we have fullness in Christ. We're going to get to that. So everything all goes back. It is not man pulling himself up by his own bootstraps. It is not man's self-will, effort, trying as hard as he can, creating New Year's resolutions only halfway through the year. That's not what it's about. It is about sourcing Christ, being found in him. So just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live in him. Rooted and built up in him. Strengthened in your faith as you were taught and overflowing with thankfulness. So the result of this is going to be that we're going to go through is that we're going to overflow with thankfulness. Tell you, to to overflow with thankfulness there's a joy in that isn't there when you when you to if you were to interview one of these people in Colossae that was teaching this heresy they wouldn't be overflowing with thankfulness i can guarantee you there would be a burden on them this weight jesus says my burden is light you sacrifice your will and i will empower you and overcome all weariness. All right? So I'm going to suggest to you that what Paul is getting at here undercuts this sense of weariness, trying so hard over and over. And it's because when we realize that Christ is our source, and once we're found and rooted in him, we receive all of our strength through him. And we're going to get into that. But uh, this is that right there. Chapter 2, verse 6, I would venture to say would be the theme verse of this book. It's found in the middle, but I would say it's the theme verse in this book. It, I would say it best sums up everything in a nutshell of what Paul's going what Paul's saying. Okay, so the supremacy of Christ. The first thing that I want us to look at here. Supremacy of Christ. He says that he is the image, or we get our word icon from this word. He is the image of God. Hebrews 1 says he's the exact representation. In other words, he perfectly reflects God. Perfectly reflects God. Then it says that he is the firstborn... Of all creation, firstborn of all creation for or because by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. That means Jesus created the angels. And if Jesus created the angels, what on earth are you worshiping them for? What on earth are you allowing these spiritual beings to become the subject of your study and your devotion? No, Christ needs to be. And this, so this is his point. He created all of these things. Now I want us to look at this term firstborn. If you ever have a Jehovah's Witness, knock on your door. And you begin a conversation with them. And they start talking about Jesus um, usually they don't. Jesus is kind of like a footnote in what they, the cross is kind of a footnote in their beliefs. If you were to ever pick up a watchtower, there is, I, I have yet to find much written about the cross. And the ones that I have read have actually said nothing about the cross until the very end. And it's, it's just in passing. Um, everything is about the father and I, 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 If you were to get into a conversation with them, you would soon discover they don't believe that Jesus is God and that Jesus is merely the firstborn. And when they use this term firstborn, what they really mean is first created being first created being. And so they would ask you now, obviously he wasn't born, but what is the idea of him being the firstborn of all creation of all that create, all that was created. Jesus was the firstborn. That means he was the first one that God created. Do You see their logic in that. Okay. So, wow, really firstborn of all creation. But then you read the next verse. For or because he create all things or by him all things were created. That if let me just I'm gonna use a little diagram here, a schemata. Firstborn um created all things. OK, according to the Jehovah's Witnesses, because Jesus was the firstborn, he therefore created all things. But when you look at what Paul says, he uses the word because. So I'm going to use I'm going to put this as a and this is B. A is firstborn, B is created all things. So if you were to create a logic diagram or schemata, You would say A causes B. But is that what Paul is saying here? Because when you read it, he says he's the firstborn of all creation because by him all things were created. Because why is he the firstborn? Because he created all things. Actually, Paul is saying, no, it's this way. It's B causes A. Because Jesus created all things, He is now called the firstborn of all creation. But wait a second, that is totally contrary to what the Jehovah's Witnesses will tell you at your front door. And it's because they lower the status of Jesus. They don't want to make him the exalted God become man that he is, and therefore worthy of worship. Actually, they do not worship Jesus. So they say, in 1950, before 1950, the uh, New World Translation, which is their Bible, you translated the Greek word proskuneo as worship. Uh, fair. That's what the King James says. That's what all of our translations do at least 95% of the time or more. <clears throat> In 1950, they began to realize, or they would realized this before, but by 1950, they said, you know what? We need to change this word. Whenever we find the word proskuneo, worship, with Referring to Jesus as far as us worshipping Jesus, we're gonna change the word. Now, it can mean to honor or pay homage or to bow or bend the knee. We see this in the parable in Matthew eighteen. Does anybody know what that is? That's the song. Do you song? I think it is I thought it was an alarm going off next door. Okay, back on track here. And so, let me just—I'm trying to figure out where I was. They translate it as what? Thank you. And so, they—they—it's—it's it's, in Matthew 18. In the parable, it talks about the servant bowing before the king, and it's that Greek word proskuneo. So it can be translated that way. But, you know, how nice that they suddenly change in 1950 their Bible. So when that word is used with reference to Jesus, it's now translated bow before or pay homage or give honor to. Now, I'm just going to tell you that there are certain times in which it can't be translated that way. And when you go to come to Revelation chapter 5, they worship proskuneo, the Father and him who sits to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be glory and honor and power and church. that is worship right there. You can't get around it. They worship the lamb. So why do we worship the Lamb? Because of who he is. He created all things and because of that he was called firstborn of all creation. Odd title to be given him to to Jesus but turn to Psalm 89:27 Psalm 89:27 <clears throat> In Psalm 89:27 it says this I will also this is God speaking I will also appoint him my firstborn with regard to uh, to, with regard to David. Uh, Verse 20, I found David my servant. Okay? I will also appoint him, David, my firstborn, the most exalted of the kings of the earth. Okay? Firstborn does not necessarily mean born first. David, by the way, was not the first king of Israel, was he? Who was? Saul was, but David was the first one appointed by God, truly by God. David was God's choice. Saul was the nation of Israel's choice. David was God's choice. And he becomes, of course, an exalted king. Um, and, And so God gives him this title, firstborn. He's my firstborn. Israel was God's firstborn. The nation of Israel was God's firstborn. Okay. So we have to be careful. The word, that term firstborn is a title, though it's generally given to the one born first. It's not always. And it's not just having to do with one born first. Okay. Or even created or anything. It is a title of supremacy. And so, for example, um, The Manasseh and Ephraim are are born, and they're twins. Manasseh comes out first, so he's technically born first, but Ephraim, born second, is the one who is given the firstborn rights. And when Isaac adopts them, he actually, instead of putting his right hand on Manasseh, he crosses them and puts his right hand on Ephraim and gives the firstborn blessing to Ephraim. Okay? Now, why he does that, I'm not sure. But there were blessings that God was going to be giving to Ephraim as the firstborn. And so, anyway, so Jesus receives this title, firstborn. Now, if we were to skip down just a few verses, we also come across this phrase He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead. Now, the Greek is firstborn from among the dead is different than firstborn of all creation. Firstborn from among the dead or out of the dead tells us that Jesus was a member or a, he was one of the dead. Do you see that? For Jesus to be, it says he's the firstborn from among the dead. That means He was one of those people who was dead, but then he obviously was made alive. Firstborn of all creation is worded differently. It doesn't say firstborn out of all creation, because that would make Jesus, that would be, that would imply that Jesus was a created being. He was firstborn out of all creation, just like firstborn out of or from among the dead. And that's not how the Greek reads. It says firstborn of all creation, supreme of all creation. Why is he supreme? Because he created all things. All right. Now, so Jehovah's Witnesses will play on this. See, if he's firstborn from among the dead, then that means he was dead, but now he's alive. So if he's the firstborn of all creation, that means he was created and now he's the head. That is not how the Greek reads at all. Okay. So, this then emphasizes the supremacy of Christ. Now, if we were to go through these verses from fifteen to twenty, and you were to underline the in, in Greek it's one word, but you, in your translations it's probably two words, like all things. You will find that phrase four times: all things, all things. He created all things. Um, He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Verse 20, and through him, Jesus, to reconcile to himself, God, all things. So the purpose of Christ coming to this earth was to reconcile to God all things. Now, not just human beings, but all things. There is a... Um, a corruption in God's created order. It has sin, has affected and infected all of God's creation. And so Christ's death on the cross was meant to therefore bridge that and deal with that, not just the sin, but the impact of that sin and that corruption in all of creation. And so... He did this, it says, through the cross, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Okay, so this is, this is, this word right here, reconcile, by the way, is a different word for reconcile that you will find in Romans. It's just a little different. It has a preposition in front of it. And the best way to translate it, in my opinion, would be super reconcile, hyper reconcile, to reconcile fully. And, and this is the idea. He's going to fully reconcile all things to himself. Now, this is a little bit of the picture of what Ephesians 1, I think it's verse 10, gets into. Um, and you can just write that down. I'm not going to get into that, but it is God's ultimate purpose, eternal purpose to bring glory to him. Okay. Let me just check here with where I am at. I want to make sure I am on target here. Okay. We see this phrase, where is it? In verse 19, for God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. That phrase is reflected on in chapter 2, verse, what is it? uh, 10, excuse me, 9, verse 9. For in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. Now, there are two words... I'm going to put up on the board here. One is the thea tetas, and the other is, and you're going to see just how close these two are. Okay, Thea it means divine essence and theotetos means divine essence. Theates means divine attributes. So there's a big difference here. This word theotes is used in Romans chapter one verse twenty, where it says God's eternal power and theates, plural divine attributes are clearly seen in what he has created. Jesus was not, did not receive the fullness of God's attributes. He received the fullness of God's essence. That means who he was. So we're talking about the essence of God, not just his attributes. I'm sorry, this, this is kind of theological, I realize, But this is actually an important point when we're looking at who is Jesus. The fullness of God's essence dwelt in him because he was fully God but yet fully man. Okay. Then it says that we receive this full... We receive fullness in Christ. And that fullness then is the overflow of the character of God, obviously not the essence of God. I don't receive the fullness of God's essence into my life. I don't. I have a spirit, and I desire to be full of his spirit, but I'm not full of the essence of God. That would make me God. And so we... Re- we uh we see some of this then when we get when we look at first excuse me second peter chapter 1 verse 4 and i'm going to read that to you you don't have to turn there i'm sorry quick question what, Yeah. what's the word what that is um theotēs okay theotēs means divine attributes and theotate theotetos means divine essence and this is the one that's used in Colossians 2 9. It's, it's the word deity. Thank you for helping me clarify that. But in verse 9 it says, For in Christ all the fullness of the theotetos lives in bodily form. Okay, that's the word fullness. It's different. Yeah. So the fullness of the divine essence was in Christ. Not just the divine attributes. See, we participate in the divine attributes. 2 Peter 1 4 says this. Through these, his glory and goodness, we have, uh, excuse, through these, he has given us his very great and precious promises so that through them we may participate in the divine nature and escape the corruption of the world caused by evil desires. So, this is our fullness. It has to do with the attributes of God, not the essence of God. The essence of God, the fullness of God's essence, is what dwelt in Jesus in bodily form. And we now have been filled in Christ. That's how that literally translates in verse 10, verse 10 there. And you have been filled in Christ. All right. Um, Paul, then from chapter 1, verse 24 to chapter 2, verse 5, he basically goes into this... Uh, that he, he begins to talk about how he has been called to be a servant of this gospel... God has used him to reveal the mystery of the gospel, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. He says even in verse 29, to this end, you know, sh- proclaiming and admonishing and teaching, presenting everyone perfect or complete in Christ to that end, that the saints would be complete in Christ to that end. He struggles with all Christ's energy, which so powerfully works in him. He struggles with all Christ's strength in him. Do you see that? So, again, this concept of being in Christ, sourcing Christ, he, oh, I'm rooted and built up in him, I live in Christ, and Paul is now empowered because of that to be able to struggle and labor and pour himself out with all of Christ's strength, which so powerfully works in him. OK, so in those verses there from chapter one, verse 24 to chapter two, verse five, he is talking about the mystery of Christ and how he has been called to proclaim this in order to bring them to complete maturity in Christ. Um, I didn't write this first down. Give me one second here. Okay. So in chapter 2, verse 3, it says, In whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I mentioned before, now Christ is supreme. This is his point in chapter 1. And everything that we need to know about truth. Understand in Paul's day, philosophy was really big. Philosophy was elevated to, like, God and wisdom is found in God, and and many of them would even agree with that. Their understanding of God would be vastly different than what we believe, of course. And so they would take what they could learn about the world and create philosophies and build their arguments for these philosophies but they're empty because it has no picture of Christ. It has an inaccurate understanding of who God is because many of them would would believe in the, the Greek pantheon. Um, and so as a result, if we don't understand who God is, we don't understand who Christ is, we don't even understand the power of the cross, where does that leave us? We are now trying to build this bridge back to God. And some of this stuff, as I was saying before, got into the uh, the Colossian church and Paul is having to address it. And so he's telling them here, all truth finds its root in Christ. All knowledge and wisdom are found only in Christ. Um, so how do we then receive this fullness because to receive this fullness is not going to be by following all of these rules and regulations it's not good. if we were, can I, if we were to look around our world christianity is the only religion that's rooted in grace every other religion and philosophy is about what man can do to earn anything from god if they believe in a god It is all about what we do. It is all about the effort that we put into it. And so this heresy that Paul is addressing is very relevant in our day. If you were to go up to a non-Christian, you could have a decent conversation about ethics because there's a lot about ethics that you would agree on. But they would basically say something like, most of them, they would say, you know what? Christianity, Buddhism, Islam, um, all of these religions, they all are focused on the same thing. And that is love one another. Do good things. Help one another out. Care for each other. And you have to step back and And this is what Paul was having to say. Yes, but absolutely no. Because you're going to try and do all of this on your own strength and you can't. And that's why he says here in chapter two, verse 13, when you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins. And so... We re- This is how we received Christ. If you were to go back to verse 6, so then just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live in him. Receiving Christ is chapters 1 and 2. Walking or living in him is what chapter 3 and some of chapter 4 is about. So he, he's now talking about receiving Christ. What is What did Christ do? So for us to receive this fullness in Christ, our full humanity of what we were destined to become, renewed, as Colossians says, in the image of our creator, for me to become the true man of God the, that God intended, it starts with Christ, and I source Christ. I look to him. Why? Because I was dead. In my sins, I was dead, and God had to make me alive. God was the one who then forgave me of all of my sins. He was the one who had to circumcise my flesh. He was the one who had to cancel all the condemnation that came from the law. Now, let me ask you this, because he talks about the, the power of the cross, and then suddenly it feels as if he changes gears right there in verse 15. Look at verse 15. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, that word powers is literally rulers rulers and authorities he made a public spectacle of them triumphing over them by the cross now who are these rulers and authorities rulers and authorities and again it's the same phrase rulers and authorities that we actually find in the book of ephesians um ephesians chapter three verse ten where it talks about uh That the manifold wisdom of God has been displayed. His intent was that now through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be displayed to all the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. That would include angels, yes, but demons as well. Now when we get to chapter 6, it then says that we're to put on the full armor of God to take our stand against rulers, and authorities and the world powers of this darkness and the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly He's talking about demons there. And so this phrase, rulers and authorities, either refers to angels or it refers to fallen angels, which would be demons. Who do you think that he's referring to here in chapter 2, verse 15? Who do you think he's referring to, the angels or the Demons absolutely the demons and actually what you get a picture of is a general who has captured the enemy and he is now parading them as he his army marches into the city and he is on his white steed as he comes into the city all the captives are chained to one another. many times they have hooks in their nose and the chain will run through the nose. So you definitely do not want to try and run away. Um, but he parades the enemy through the city in triumph, and they are they're made a public spectacle of as a result. The question though is, Why does he introduce this? I mean, I I think it's an awesome verse that he has disarmed the rulers and authorities by the cross, but why does he do that? So here's my question to you. How was Satan and his demons disarmed? Rather, to be disarmed means that your weapons were taken away from you. You understand that. What weapons, is my question, what weapons were taken away from Satan and the demons? The ability to accuse us. Okay, accusations. What else? Well, it says right in that paragraph that we are dead and that we are made alive. And then later on it says we were raised with Christ and we were dead. Okay. Okay. They no longer have authority over us. Um, but that authority was exercised because of our sin. And scripture says that our sins have been forgiven. Satan's weapons then are accusations, our temptations, and our deceptions. And Paul addresses this. He says, with regard to deceptions, we're rooted in the truth. We're rooted in the Father's love. Any lies of the devil are gonna seek to assault truth. But you have the truth. You're rooted and grounded in the truth. Satan is gonna try and tempt us. And how he does that is through the, the, through when we tend, when we source the flesh. But we have been freed from the flesh. It has actually been crucified, so it has no power over us. Now that doesn't mean we cannot source it, but we are not connected by a ball and chain. We are not subject to its power and authority anymore. That has been crucified. Okay? So, even though, even though we have been crucified to the world, we can still sometimes act like the world, right? So, but the power that the world had on us, the sway that it had on us before we came to Christ, that is what has been broken. The flesh, the power of the flesh has been broken. It's been circumcised. But can we sin? Yes, we can. But the hold that it had on us, that has been broken. And Satan now can no longer use that flesh to control us, the only way to do that is if we choose to yield to it, and we can do that, we can yield to the flesh, but it does not have that power and authority over us like it did. The other way, the other uh, weapon is as Mickey Lana mentioned, is accusations, and because we are hidden with Christ in God, because our sins have been forgiven then there is no accusation Romans 8 1 there is therefore no condemnation for those of you who are in Christ Jesus the law and its condemnation has been canceled against us our sins have been forgiven there is no weapon that the devil has listen unless you give him one okay Unless you yield truth, unless you yield to the flesh, unless you yield to listening to his lies, his accusations that are false, because he's been hurled down. The father doesn't listen to his accusations anymore. The father is dead set on what the truth is. We are in Christ. We have the righteousness of Christ Um, our sins are completely forgiven. No accusations against the saints will stand before God. The problem, though, is not that God gives ear to the enemy, but we can. So we can yield to that. It's just that they're all lies. All these accusations, they're lies. They make us feel unworthy. They make us feel condemned. They make us feel like, you know, how can God love me? In fact, I'm sure that he doesn't. And these accusations can build in our life and become such a source of depression and unfounded guilt. And these weapons, because of what Christ has done for us to up to, verse 15, because of what Christ has done for us here, in that way, by the cross, the enemy's been disarmed. Okay? So as a result, don't let people judge you by what you eat or drink. Or by what you celebrate? A Sabbath, a new moon celebration? um, A new moon festival? (laughs) Because he says these were shadows. They were shadows. In other words, they prefigured uh, something about Christ. The Sabbath prefigured the rest, Hebrews 4 prefigured the rest that we would have in christ so do i keep all ten commandments well i try but even though i may work on sunday i am still keeping the sabbath by the way scripture never tells me that the sabbath changed from saturday to sunday never says that the lord's day is different than the sabbath i think the body of christ made a serious mistake trying to get away from you know you know creating a christian version of the sabbath And and the reason why they did that is because they wanted to continue to observe the Sabbath. And that's fine. Romans 14, we looked at this two weeks ago. One man observes one day as special. Another man observes all days as special. That's fine. There's benefit in observing whether it's Saturday or Sunday as the Sabbath, but there's benefit to observing all days as holy unto the Lord. Not necessarily that you don't work because you have to work, right? so it is it's a mistake when someone seeks to judge us saying hey you worked on saturday that's right yes i did and i kept the sabbath as a matter of fact i keep the sabbath every day because that is what christ has fulfilled for me so these are shadows hebrews 10 1 talks about the ceremonial law as being shadows as well the festivals as shadows we do not have to keep the Jewish festivals because the Jewish festivals looked ahead to Christ, which is the body. And I don't know what your version says. Mine says the reality is found in Christ. The Greek word there is Soma, body. The body is, is in Christ. And so he's the body that casts the shadow. So you you come across the shadow the Old Testament, you see it has a vague outline, maybe it's a little bit longer than the actual body or thinner or whatever, but it resembles the body and it prefigures that body, prefigures Christ. So that was the purpose of the law. And so he says because these uh the law has been uh, Cancelled against you, these accusations. Cancelled against you, these ceremonial laws are not things you need to observe anymore. Um, it is because they were simply looking ahead to Christ. So everything, again, goes back to Christ. You are you you received Christ, and now you are now we seek to live in Christ. We are rooted and built up in Christ, strengthened in the faith as we were taught, and overflowing with thankfulness. Okay. Um, Just a, a word with regard to this type of asceticism in verses 20 to 23. He says that these regulations, whatever regulations they may be, and can I just tell you that it is fine if for example as a young man this is what i chose to do uh a very like uh, in my late teens um i realized that going to the beach every time was an issue for my heart and so for a time there a couple of years i just chose not to go to the beach so was it sin if i went to the beach um, I'll be honest with you, I did feel guilty. There was a time in which I went to the beach. I shouldn't have. I didn't need to. But I had made that rule for myself. But that was a, hey, do not go there. Don't. And I could have gone there and just chosen to source Christ rather than the flesh. But at that point, I made a decision. I'm just not going to do that. That's fine, but that lacks any value, listen to this, in restraining sensual indulgence. That is, an, that is a young, immature way of dealing with sin. Now, it's avoiding the possibility altogether. Okay, all right, that, that's fine. I, I, I don't feel condemned in any way for that decision. I realized, though... That I needed to grow up more and learn how to control my thought life by, in essence, as everything, falling more in love with Jesus and finding my strength completely in him. And so they just, not going to the beach, had no value in restraining sensual indulgence. Okay? Okay. We have to learn to restrain sensual indulgence. Okay? And it's, if part of the reason for people becoming monks was that way they did not have to interact with the sin in the world at all and they could become holier. This is the essence of asceticism. I'm just going to, I'm not going to look at women. I'm not going to. You know, uh, I'm not going to expose myself to pride lest my heart gets filled with pride. And so they became very reclusive. And that, that way they could study the Bible and translate it. There are good things that came out of monasteries. Don't get me wrong. But the problem is it lacked value in restraining sensual indulgence. That is not the pathway that God asks us to take. We are in the world, but not of the world. Okay, so I, there are certain things you may just say, you know, I'm just not going to do that because I might sin. Okay, that's fine. But let's just understand that that is not the pathway to holiness. The pathway to holiness is not avoiding sin altogether because then you would have to leave this world. The pathway to holiness is source in Christ. It is finding that passion in Christ that fills us. And it, and it fills us with life and, and motivation and strength. Everything comes from my relationship in Christ. Okay, let me just find my, uh, my place here. All right, on that note, let's look at chapter 3. Um, I'm just going to spend a few minutes on this and then we're going to go to Philemon. Let me read these first several verses. It says, since then you have been raised with Christ, set your hearts on things above. That idea of set your hearts is really the Greek word for seek, seek the things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Philippians chapter 4 talks about this. Set your minds on things above and not on earthly things, as it says here. But it says, uh, think about those things that are trustworthy and praiseworthy and excellent. And um, my mind's escaping me. There's a list of eight different things there. Um, So that's basically what he is getting at here. Set your mind on things above not on earthly things, for you died and your life, your life, the essence of life, is now hidden with Christ in God. And verse 4 says, when Christ who is your life appears, then you will appear with him in glory. Christ is your life. Christ is your life. It's not like Jesus is your friend who's coming along with you he is your everything, and this this Colossian heresy totally undermined that. Christ isn't your life; your life is found out there in the world. Find life. Make sure that you're not sinning. Try to do right, and God is going to bless you. And it is it was its its thinking was completely separated from this concept of sourcing Christ my life is hidden with Christ in God and so this this remember we were dead which means this there was no spiritual connection with God i was lost and a slave to sin and now that i'm alive that death is gone because I'm a, I have life in me by the Spirit, and therefore these chains are broken, and I am free now to make wise decisions in Christ to not sin. And so, because of this freedom that you now have, he says, put to death whatever belongs to this earthly nature. And this first set of sins has to do with lusts, evil desires. Um. There's a couple of lists here. The next one is found in verse 8, and he says, rid yourselves. So first, put to death, now rid yourselves of all such things as anger, rage, malice, languor, and filthy language from your lips. Those have to do with anger, this emotion of anger that can control you. You don't suppress the anger. You don't vent the anger. Just like Colossians 4, what is it, verse 31 says, get rid of the anger. There's only one way to get rid of the anger, okay? And that is by fully immersing yourself in Christ. Discovering the vastness of his love. Now, I've mentioned this before, so this isn't new, but it it amazes me the simple truth of God so loved the world. Jesus loves me, this I know. And when I fully grasp how wide and long and high and deep is this love that Christ has for me, when I really grasp that, it frees me in this realm of anger. My value is found completely in Christ's love for me. Not what other people think about me. Not my performance this day or that day. Not what the boss says about me. My value is is unmoved with regard to what people think or say. And it is rooted only in Christ. Anger is this human nature response to feeling that value slip from us. Okay? We get angry. Anger is a defense mechanism. We push away. When people are rude to us, we're angry because we feel devalued. But if we are truly finding our source of value in Christ alone, in God alone, and that, is, that can be tested in thousands of ways. And to this day, I, I realize, man, Lord, I still don't find my complete value in you. That's embarrassing, Lord. And I've been walking with you for over 40 years, and I am still learning. I am still learning the most basic principle in the entire Bible. Jesus loves me. This I know. And then because of this, he then says, therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. All of these, bearing one another, forgiving, all of these are, are if you were to sum up this list, it would have to do with love and how we respond to our fellow man. And then he says, of course, right there in verse 14, he says, And over all these virtues put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. I love the way that that's worded. Um, I've pretty much run out of time with regard to uh, Colossians. There's so much more that's uh, here. Uh, I am not going to touch on uh, wives, husbands, children, fathers, slaves, masters, because I have done that uh, somewhat regularly in sermons. Um, I do want to just conclude with this in chapter 4, verse 5. He says, Be wise in the way you act toward outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. Can I just say this, that when our conversation, even with the world, is constantly filled with love, not rudeness, not attacks, but grace, salt, conversation filled with grace. Isn't that an unusual way to, to word that? Grace doesn't mean just eh, forgiving them. It's more than that. Grace, remember, our Words of life that empower Ephesians 4.29. Give grace to those who listen. How? With wholesome words. With words that bring life, not death. Words that build up rather than tear down. So even with the word... Now, if we are in this habit of our conversation always being full of grace, seasoned with salt, in other words, it's pleasant, it's enjoyable, your conversation is always enjoyable You will know how to respond to outsiders when they seek to persecute you, when they seek to inquire or downgrade your faith. You will know how to answer them because you will answer them in love. So be very careful how you act toward outsiders. Our conversation is impactful when it comes to outsiders, and he's, and again making the most of every opportunity. So, we're gonna we're gonna leave Colossians, and we're now gonna go over to Philemon, and, and uh, I'm just gonna say a few things now about Philemon, probably about five or so minutes. But Philemon, was it says that a church meets in his home. Philemon is a slave owner. Philemon is a Christian. Slave owner. He is Paul's friend and fellow worker. Now, if you just skip down in verse 24, Luke is called, and Demas, and Archippus, and Mark, all of them are called Paul's fellow workers. They labored in the kingdom. This guy Philemon has his head screwed on straight. He is more than likely a leader in the church. He labors in the kingdom. He is probably wealthy. He has a large enough home so that a number of people can meet in his home, a church. He understands forgiveness, he understands love, and he is a slave owner. Now, Paul is not against slavery as we see it in the new testament he would be against slavery that america experienced but the slavery that's mentioned in the new testament only somewhat reflected and at times reflected the slavery in america okay um many times it was because of indebtedness that people were slaves whatever the reason for Onesimus being philemon's slave Onesimus, as an unbeliever, left against his owner's wishes. That was wrong. It was actually against the law, and it was sin. Onesimus had an obligation. Now, it is possible that he took something with him that he believed was his own, but Philemon did not. They may well have disagreed about, you know, maybe something that they had spoken about that. If you do this, you can have this or I'm just going to I, you can have it while you're with me. What, there was some confusion. And the reason why I say that there's confusion is because Paul says when Anesimus comes, if he owes you anything. So Paul's not even certain about this himself. If he owes you anything, I'll pay for it. So it's possible that he stole something, but more than likely there was probably a disagreement, maybe a gray area. But he left. He was a slave and he left. He could be beaten. And if he was found guilty of stealing something, by Roman law, he could be put to death. Now that's Roman law. That would not be God's law. So Philemon could exercise law and could really severely have uh, Onesimus beaten or put to death or any number of things within the Roman law. But Paul, look at what he does in verse 8. Therefore, although in Christ I could be bold and order you to do what you ought to do, not what Roman law says, but what you ought to do, what Christ's law of love says. And Roman law contradicts God's law on this point Now, you could take him back as a slave. But he says later, in essence, I'm going to encourage you to go the extra mile. Look at verse 15. Perhaps the reason he was separated from you, and and it really is he departed from you. It's not that something happened and pulled him away, but he departed. Okay. Perhaps the reason he departed from you for a little while, literally an hour, was that you might have him back for good, literally eternally. So even though he departed for an hour, it was so that you could have him back as a brother in the Lord eternally. In heaven, he will be yours as a brother in the Lord, not as a slave, but as a brother. Then he says, um, no longer... As a slave, but better than a slave as a dear brother. He is very dear dear to me, but even dearer to you, both as a man and as a brother in the Lord. Um, He says there in verse 19, I, Paul, am writing this with my own hand. So it's very unusual for Paul to write an entire letter with his own hand. He did that, though. I will pay it back if if he owes you anything, not to mention that you owe me your very self. I do wish, brother, that I may have some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Confident of your obedience, I write to you knowing that you will do even more than I ask. Okay, I I missed this and I meant to, to read it. Verse 12, I am sending him who is my very heart back to you. I would have liked to keep him with me so that he could take your place in helping me while I am in chains for the gospel. But I did not want to do anything without your consent. So that's why he's not ordering him. He is asking him. And he is not only asking him to not punish him, but he is now asking him, he used to be your servant. Now I am asking you, Philemon, can you serve him? And can you welcome him, just like you would welcome me? And could you open your home to him, just like you would open your home to me? And could you send him back because he is now taking your place? You used to help me. But now I'm in chains and he is able to do that and serve me and help me in the cause of the gospel so much. And so in essence, um, the command, you know, obeying God would mean to treat him rightly as a slave. But love, not the command, but love would go the extra mile. It would free Onesimus to serve Paul and for Philemon to serve Onesimus as a servant of the gospel. Why? Because he has become useful. And the very name Onesimus means useful. So do you see what Paul is doing here? He is asking Philemon, go the extra mile. Not only don't charge him, Welcome him back, not as a slave, but as a brother, and free him so that now he can help me in the cause of the gospel. And he's making this appeal to a man of God. And we don't know what Philemon did, but I have a feeling he did exactly what Paul encouraged him to do. And he freed Onesimus. The master, Philemon, became the servant and sent him off. Maybe even gave him money so that he can now serve in the cross of the gospel. That is awesome. Let me close in prayer. Father, I I thank you that you are such a good God. I thank you that you are able to not only raise us from the dead and bring life into us, but God, you are able to completely change our hearts. You're able to... uh, free us. You're able to uh, not, just no long, not just that we're no longer slaves, but we are now freed to be your slave. Father, thank you for the beautiful challenge that we find here in Philemon to go that extra mile. That is the real essence of love. And so, Father, I ask, would you help us as we do that? Would you highlight people in our lives, circumstances in our lives which you are calling us to this principle of love, to be able to go that extra mile, to serve those maybe who are even obligated to us. Because Christ didn't come to be served, but to serve. Give us that attitude, Lord, we pray in Christ's name.